Maybe you've heard the phrase, drop the mic. That's what Jesus did last week as we walked through that part of John where he's got his critics coming at him hard and he's teaching in the synagogue. And as he's teaching, they are trying to attack him in every way possible. They're wanting to kill him. We'll talk a little bit about that. But as he speaks to them, he says to them, Didn't, don't, don't you remember Moses? Don't you remember your forefathers? I mean, you claim that this is what you do, and you're trying to judge me because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. I made somebody whole on the Sabbath, and yet on a particular day, following the regulations of Moses and the forefathers, the law, you make sure that baby boys are circumcised on a particular day, even if it falls on the Sabbath. Don't you? So in other words, he just spotlighted them that they always make sure the circumcisions take place on a Saturday if they're supposed to, which requires work to be done and partially injures the little boys for temporarily. And they're complaining that he actually healed a grown man on the Sabbath. And so as he does this, he, in front of everybody who's the, the religious leaders are pointing their fingers at him, and he basically just drops the mic. Nobody can say anything. So now they're really upset with him. And we pick up today where we left off last week. And I want to give you a little quote that I found on the internet. There's, you can find lots of uh, worthless stuff on the internet, but every now and then you find something good, and you'll see it up behind me. Meekness is strength and power under control. Today we're in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. The title of the message is, A Taste of His Meekness, Power Restrained. So, he just Drop the mic. You have an image up behind me. It's not Jesus, but it's somebody dropping the mic. That just happened. Now let's pick up where we left off. John chapter 7, verse 25. You can read along behind me or in your Bibles. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Okay, we're going to dissect this piece by piece and look at what they're saying. And we'll reread it so that it makes better sense. But I want to go ahead and look at the first part of it. So it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? I wanted to highlight this because of what happened last week. If you'll remember, let's go ahead and back up a few weeks before in chapter 5. Look at this. This was why, this is verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There are religions out there very distinct from Christianity that like to say, well, we believe Jesus was a good man. We talked about that last week. Or he was just a good prophet. We talked about the great trilemma. He can't be those things. But what they like to also say when you try to tell them, well, he claimed he was God. They say, no, he didn't. And they get us off step 
because a lot of us aren't prepared for that. If you would like, I'll have some things setting out for you when you leave, where it, there's verse after verse of Jesus saying that he is God. Do they like to say, these other religions say, well, he never claimed that. And then we're, we're caught off guard, like, uh, I think he did, but where? Well, here's one place right here in John chapter 5. We already went over it. He is making himself equal with God, and that ticked them off so badly they wanted to kill him. This, these are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious leaders who don't follow their own rules. We know from John chapter 5, by the inspiration of God, they want to kill him now. Okay, so I want to go to the next slide. Look at this. You'll see another passage, John chapter 7, verses 19 to 21. This is last week. We talked about this when he dropped the mic. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Then he drops the mic after that, but just... Pay close attention to what's going on here. He brought it out into the light. Why do you seek to kill me? Oh, come on. You must have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Well, they do. Because here in the text today, we see that the people, some of the people of Jerusalem, these aren't the religious leaders. They know that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. That's that's what it says right here. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? I mean, he's right there in front of them. All right. So it's clear that they are just lying. They were trying to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And then they're asking this, well, isn't this the one? And then it goes further in the text. You see, and here, here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Well, maybe. I mean, it's reasonable that they would make that assumption. Like, if they want to kill him, and they're telling everybody they want to kill him, everybody knows they want to kill him, except they deny it to him. They want to kill him, and we all know it, but yet, there they are. They can reach him, they can grab him, and they're just letting him talk. Maybe they know he is the Christ. Maybe that's why they're leaving him alone. That's reasonable. I suspect it's something else. I suspect it's fear that they are afraid. I mean, maybe they're afraid because some might suspect, could he really be the Christ? I doubt it. I mean, you wouldn't want to kill him if you thought that. (laughs) But maybe they're afraid because he has done... some miracles that you can't argue about. They really did happen. Lots of witnesses. You can't argue. I think it has more to do with fear, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I want to give you a passage out of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Right at the very beginning, as it introduces the book of wisdom in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and hate instruction. Well, now... I was in a study, a group is probably larger than this group, and as we're in this study, it was on a Wednesday night, and the lady that was leading it, and I think I've told you this before, she basically said that we were going to go over the next week, we're going to talk about fear, 
what the Bible says about fear. And at the time, I was actually disabled, and I'd already been to seminary, and I had books in my home, and so I thought her assignment was, she said, read what the Bible says about fear. So I picked out my Strong's Concordance. Some of you know what that is. The church has a copy or two. And I looked up fear, and I looked up afraid, and all of the derivatives. And as I did this, there were literally well over a thousand references for fear and afraid, and the other derivatives of those words. As I did this, I went to my Bible. If I didn't know the context, I looked it up. If I could read it in Strong's and I could see the line, I'm like, I know the context, I already know. But if I didn't know the context, I, I went ahead and I looked it up to make sure I would remember the context. And I took notes. When we gathered back, now understand, I was different than the others because, yes, there were some retired people that could also spend time, but they hadn't been to seminary and didn't have the books. And there were probably others who had extra time, but there I was, disabled, with all the time in the world. So when we gathered back together, she said, did anybody do the homework assignment? Did you, did you read what the Bible says about fear? And uh, the room was blank, like, I don't want to say anything. Apparently, people didn't do their homework, so I raised my hand, because I did. Well, what did you do? I told them what I just told you. I looked up every reference in Strong's Concordance uh, that I didn't already know, the context, and I took notes on all of it. And so, what was your conclusion about fear? And I said, well, we're supposed to fear God, and that's it. Don't fear anything else, just fear God. And then in the class, she proceeded to lead the group by saying there were two books that she had been using for the study. And in these books, both of these authors agree that no Christian should have any fear whatsoever. Not even fearing God, that that's not okay. And the room just kind of all went with it. And it was crazy. Uh, even uh, one person spoke up who was an elder in the church and said, well, we need to ask the question, where did fear crumb, come from? And then you can see. So, so the fear was interjected into the world by the devil. So you Christians should never fear anything. Oh, I even mentioned, well, what about kids like, that are about to run out in front of traffic? Shouldn't, shouldn't they fear death? Shouldn't they fear the parent who yells when the parent says, stop? Shouldn't they fear them enough to stop so they don't run out in front of traffic? They went on to, in their own minds, one lady spoke up in the back of the room, it's very bad that we teach children to fear when we yell at them to not jump off the cliff or not run into traffic. Like, what in the world kind of brainwashing do you people have? I quoted Proverbs 1.7. I quoted other verses. Uh, but I also mentioned at the beginning, yes, at the beginning, who created fear? It was God, not the devil. Because at the beginning, he said, you can have all that you want in the garden. Just don't eat tree. Don't eat of the fruit on that tree. He could have left it at that. He could have just said, please. But instead, he said, or you'll surely die. He tried to get them to fear him, and it was because they did not fear him enough that they went ahead and listened to the devil and ate. God created fear, not the devil. And God's the one who tells us that you can't even begin to understand anything unless you fear God. That's the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. People don't like it. They want to do things like this book and this book, they agree and then push the Bible aside. 
Better fear God, better pay attention. And let me give you some more scripture that talks about this, not just that one. How about, because I gave you one in the Old Testament, how about, and we talked about in the Old Testament, God created fear. How about the New Testament all the way to the end of the book of Revelation? Look at this verse. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and following. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And this my friends, is part of the eternal gospel, fearing God. And people will say, well, that's just, you know what? It's just talking about respect. It's not really talking about real fear. It's just talking about respect. You, there are, there's, words mean things. And the word respect is actually used in the Bible. This is fear. I want to read to you another passage in the middle of the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, part of your salvation. You're supposed to, you are supposed to fear understanding who the judge is. Now, I, I found something interesting as I looked up a passage. I wanted to show it to you as it appears in many of your Bibles. If you look this up yourself in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, all the way to verse 7, if you look this up, you might notice that um, it says, have no fear, at least in this particular English Standard Version. That's a subtitle given to uh, the text by the people who did the translation. It's not inspired to be there. Let's go ahead and read it. I tell you, my friends, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom, you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Don't fear him, but fear the one who's got the power to judge you, to cast you into, into hell. And we learn from many other passages we've already read in John, Jesus is the judge. So in other words, he's saying, fear me. Don't fear the devil. Don't fear these other things. Fear me. So it is definitely a misstatement to have in the subtitle, have no fear. That is wrong. You're welcome. It should say, have fear. Fear God. Fear Jesus. All right, now that you're awake, let's move on. I want to give you 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. I allude to it regularly. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I want to tell you, because I forgot to put it up here, this is not in the English Standard Version. I like the NIV's rendition of this verse. So that's what you have is the New International Version up behind me now. Everything else is English Standard Version today. 
Doctrine is an issue of salvation. So that's the problem. If you start messing around with books here and books there that tell you that what their opinion is is more important than the Bible, you got a problem. Because then when you start pushing God's Word aside, you start not obeying. You start listening to false doctrine and you're misdirected. And God wants us to fear Him enough to know that Jesus is the final judge and we need to live in such a way that pleases the judge. Okay, now I'm going to read the text again. John chapter 7, verses 25 and following. We started with this, now it's going to make more sense. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now hold on just a second. I just gave you a verse about watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, for if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. So that means this is the final authority. God's word is the final authority. And, I, and what they just did, this last line we just read, the last verse, well, we know where he comes from. So, And when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he comes from. Where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't say that. In fact, it predicts where he's going to come from, and Jesus fulfilled it. But they just, they've bought into some false doctrine. And people do this. People... You know, they, they come, they, you hear these statements and they think it's Scripture. They just think, well, I've heard it so much in church, it must be true. For instance, here's one, God helps those who help themselves. You know where that is. Second Opinions, chapter 6, <laughs> verse 6. Um, it's not in the Bible, but people say this. And there's, there's some truth to that partially, but it's not always true because not everyone can help themselves. But we, we hear it so much, we think it's a verse in the Bible. It's not there. And these people think that, well, this can't be the Christ, because we know Mary and Joseph had him, you know. I mean, he can't be the Christ. In their ignorance, they're proclaiming in front of everyone something they think to be true, which is absolutely false. All right, let's move along in the text. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. They don't realize it. It was really, even though the Catholics have named it an immaculate conception, it was. It was a miracle. He came from God. All right. Look at verse 38. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We'll get back to this, but I want to put a ticker up uh, behind me. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's going a little fast, but I'll catch it the next time it goes by. Here we go. Let's try to read it together. Go ahead and click at JC, and I'll try to keep up. This is a test. What were the apostles thinking as they could see things escalating? Have you ever wondered? <laughs> Imagine you're one of the 12. Now, we know Judas is already 
messed up in the head. He's already going to you know, deny or betray Jesus. But what are those apostles that are still with the program? What are they thinking as they're there? They know that people are wanting to kill them. They know that the Jewish leaders who are right there are wanting to kill him. They know they're trying to get, they're trying to have him arrested. And Jesus, instead of saying things that will calm things down, he says things that tick them off more. And in his wisdom, he's aligned with the Father, and the sovereignty of God is a real thing. So all of this is happening because it's supposed to happen. They're supposed to get ticked at him. They're supposed to arrest him and take him before the authorities, and he's supposed to go to the cross in God's timing. But Jesus is masterfully setting this up so that they're wanting to arrest him, but it's hands off because he's been doing miracles in front of him. And we know from other things that Jesus can be a very intimidating person. When he was here on earth, he, he did that, and we'll see some of that play out. But what were the disciples, the, those chosen 12, particularly the, the, particularly the 11, what were they thinking as they're watching this happen? Because everybody knows they're with him, and he's a target. And they're with him, and it's escalating. What's about to happen? I don't know about you, but if I was one of them, my stress level would be really high because they're about to kill our leader. What are they going to do to me? You know? They're, they're trying to arrest him. What's going to happen to all of us here? This is all playing out as they are trying to follow and they're trying to believe, and things are escalating. Okay. Verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? See what they're doing? Some of them are quite rational. They're like, I mean, who would do more miracles than this guy? I mean, this guy's doing a bunch of miracles. Is there somebody else that's going to come and do more than this? I mean, I think this is the, the Christ. This is him. So you know that's also escalating things. If the crowds are starting to believe this guy that the religious leaders want to arrest and have killed, that's going to tick them off. Okay, we'll move to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Okay, so it's definitely escalating. Let's talk about something that's been going on that we haven't addressed in this as we've been going through John. I want to show you something up behind me. We've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both are making up the religious leaders that are there. Now, we just see that the Pharisees are the ones because they're the ones that are actually controlling the, uh, the guard that would arrest them. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, there's a distinction, and I, I want to remind you uh, what the distinction is. And then this week I was privileged in uh, teaching a group of people in, uh, in the prison setting, and one of the people has gone through a lot, and I was actually privileged to do uh, four baptisms this week. Uh, so praise God for that. Um, that's never happened in the history of the facility where I am, so four in one day is amazing. And uh, it takes a lot to get one done. So for one of these guys, he's already decided, to, he's already committed to Jesus. And he comes to the Bible study for the first time. He's with a group of other people who are believers. 
And while he's there, I tell him what I'm about to tell you, and I'll tell you what his response is. So if you don't know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as I've told you before, the Sadducees did not believe in anything happening to the soul after this life, that you just die and you're done. The Pharisees believed that after this life, there is something else. There is hope beyond this life. The Sadducees didn't believe that. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> when I said that, this guy's response was similar to yours. He laughed, and then he said, that's not real. <laughs> I said, well, it is real. That's not why they were named that, but that's how you'll remember the distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus, in his brilliance, while he's talking to people, if you, if you back up and look at the previous weeks, Jesus keeps bringing up, my father will raise you up on the last day. And what that does is causes a problem. Because look, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, Sadducees are attacking Jesus. They've got a unified front. You see all the arrows up behind me? Those are supposed to look like arrows. They're attacking. They've got a unified front. They're going at Jesus. But then Jesus brings up something that the Father is going to raise you up in the last day. When he does that, then if you'll notice, the Pharisees and Sadducees, now they are not unified anymore. And there's less arrows at Jesus because now they're attacking each other. You'll see the arrows pop up uh, shortly. They will. One more click. There you go. And when they do this, that makes the arrows they were sending Jesus' way less effective because they're no longer a unified group attacking Jesus. Now, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are going, you know, we, we don't, we don't, that looks, looks, he's telling lies. He's talking about, he's going to raise them up in the last day. That won't happen. And the Pharisees, well, well, it could. You know, so now they're arguing with each other and they're not unified anymore. And that is so brilliant of Jesus. And when the crowds get the feel that the people that are trying to kill him and arrest him are not so unified, that lends itself to have more people peel off and go, maybe this guy's real. Maybe he is the Christ. And I think it's a pretty masterful job of Jesus to display this in our text. So the Pharisees now, now what's happening is they're watching this happen. So he's got people they have trained to believe there is hope beyond this life, and now they're looking at him and they think it's in him. They want to get rid of him. Plus, he just dropped the mic on them, and he just showed everybody they're a bunch of hypocrites. we got to get rid of this guy. We don't like it being highlighted that we're wrong. Instead of Correcting themselves and becoming right, they just rather silence the critic who happens to be the Messiah. Okay, let's look at verse 33 and also verse 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. <laughs> so while they are conspiring to have him arrested, he's right in front of them. He's, always, he's been writing with arms reached. They could have grabbed him. But while he's right there and they're conspiring to have him arrested, he says, I'm only going to be here a little bit longer, by the way. And where I'm going, you won't be able to come. And they're not... They don't know what he's talking about, but I guarantee you this is 
agitating them. It's poking them all the more. Verses 35 and 36. These are the last two verses of our text, but we will back up uh, and uh, we'll focus uh, on more in just a minute, on another one that we already read. Uh, The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're confused. They don't know what he's talking about. We know what he's talking about because we've read ahead, but they don't know. So they are confused. The people are a little bit um, kind of not tracking what's he talking about now, but they've been there before. And then he pulls it together, and that's what he does. So I want to back up, and I want to look at verse 30 again. We kind of highlighted it. I said I would talk about this again. I want to do that. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I told you this has to do with the sovereignty of God. And I want to show you some images right now. Uh, Up behind me, you have what I call tough guy Jesus. You've got the posters out there. If you want to take one, go ahead. And I had this commission, and it came out not exactly like I wanted, but kind of close. He's probably prettier than he should be. (laughs) Some of the women who've seen the poster call it Beefcake Jesus, so I think there's a little bit of a fail there. So let me show you some other images besides this one that has the, you know, this has the guards looking like they just had the life knocked right out of them, which is what the Bible describes. I'll show you this next image. That's Jesus. He probably didn't look like that either, but it's kind of cool. Uh, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. Uh, I'll show you the next image, Jesus arm wrestling the devil. I, th- I like that one. It's kind of interesting. We, we know who's going to win. I mean, the devil looks like he's got a little bit more muscle going on, but we know who's going to win that one. And uh, The next image you'll see is uh, maybe a little bit more realistic because you've got the symbolic power of the Father striking with bolts of lightning with Jesus submitting to the Father's plan to the will of God and taking on the sins of the world. God could have unleashed His wrath, but instead, this had to happen because He loves us so much. Then I want to show you a revelation image of Jesus. This is one of my favorites. came out, I think, in the 70s. And the depiction we see in Revelation of Jesus is of a mighty warrior horseback, all the other things you can see painted into this image is a very good depiction of the image we see that's painted of Jesus in Revelation, a warrior. So if this is the images that that come to mind in some of our minds of Jesus, Jesus is capable of handling himself, but he will submit ultimately to the authorities. We know this is coming. And, it, and it's not because of his physical stature that he's capable of handling himself. It's because he's God in the flesh. I'm going to show you an image of a man that most of you don't know who that is. Anybody want to raise their hand if you know who this is? Anybody in the room? Okay, we'll put his name up there. Now, at least one person in the room besides me I know knows who this is. But you should Google this guy if you're into, don't do it if you're not into uh, aggressive sports. But Fedor Emelianenko 
my personal opinion, is one of the best of all times mixed martial artists. So if you're into mixed martial arts, you might want to Google this guy and see what he's, what he's done. And he never changes his facial expressions except in this picture. It's the only smile I've ever seen on him. He doesn't usually have a smile or a frown or anything. He's just deadpan. You know those personalities? They just always have that same expression. That's the way he is when he's getting hit in the face, kicked in the face, or when he's hitting somebody else or kicking somebody else. He's a very, very capable man, but he doesn't look like it. Just by looking at him, he looks like a goofball. I would Don't tell him I said that. If he's ever near me, don't ever tell him I said that. But I say this, and I wanted to show you this image, because Jesus was a man who physically might not have looked intimidating, but he was an intimidating individual. Let me show you another image right here. This is from The Passion of the Christ. Most of us have seen it. That's Jim Caviezel. He's an actor playing Jesus, and he did such a good job. And, and you look at this, if you didn't ever see the movie, you might look at an image like this, and you, and, and you think, is that from something like a John Wick-type movie or something? They didn't try to make it like this. It's just what it looks like in this little still that I took off of there. But I wanted to show you what... Vine's Expository Dictionary. This is a, uh, a dictionary that will define Hebrew and Greek words out of the Bible. So I'm going to give you that definition up behind me. You'll see it. And uh, it, it, this is from a Greek word, and it's defined as it is an unwrought grace of the soul. And the exercises of it are, the, are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Now, I want to give you my definition, meekness, power restrained. Because that's what Jesus is exemplifying right here with his critics wanting to kill him. So they're conspiring and planning to have him arrested. And there he is, and they're not touching him. There are some people that have power, and they like to express it, like to go around and bully others. And that, to me, is weakness. Meekness is having the power to bully others or handle others, but you don't. Having the power to protect your family, but you don't have to display that. Does that make sense? Jesus had the power to wipe out the room. Maybe that's why they had a little bit of fear. They could feel it. And sometimes you can, you've seen this play out. There are people that will behave a certain way until somebody walks in the room. Then they straighten up. A little bit of fear of what other people might think, or maybe somebody could stop them from behaving the way they're behaving. Jesus had the power within him to wipe out the room. And to keep them from touching him. But he, he didn't wield it. He didn't display it. What we're getting to see is a little, a little snapshot of his meekness, which will ultimately be displayed as it culminates on the cross. Meekness. You didn't have to go through that. But in order that we might have hope for eternity, 
He did go through that. So I want to read that verse again. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one had laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus wasn't allowing his arrest yet. That's why he wasn't arrested. He wasn't allowing it. This is power restrained. Think about it. Jesus is there, and and at some point in time, he's going to let them. He's just going to let them. Right now, he's not letting them. And that is a good image in our mind of our Lord. Power restrained. Okay, now we're going to go over what have we learned from the text I'm leaving out two major things we've already talked about. They'll come to your mind. But I'm going to go over seven of them. So let's go over them one at a time. First of all, people will deny their ill intent. They'll lie. If people have ill intentions and they're called out on it, why do you seek to kill me? Oh, you must have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Second, people will project their problems on others. Isn't that interesting? So they're trying to call him as demon-possessed. Oh, you must be evil making up stuff like that. Who wants to kill you? Well, they do, and everybody knows it. And they want to make him look bad by accusing him of things, of being evil, when it's actually them. That's, they're the ones that are evil. And people will do that. I don't know if you've been around somebody who has a real problem lying all the time. They tend to think everybody else is lying because they project their problems on others. Third, people will attack the innocent. It's a sad thing in life, but it happens. It happens all the time. In the world in which we live right now, with crime soaring all over the place, in our country especially, yeah, we know this. People will attack the innocent. And the sad thing is, sometimes they'll do it in groups. That's what happened to Jesus. And it's really weird. These attacks are happening by people who are supposed to know better. These are religious leaders and so it, it looks legitimate. And if you're just on the outside looking in, like, well, these guys know. They know good and evil because that's their expertise. Sometimes, no, not so much. The fourth thing, Jesus might wait to do what is needed. I love that I get to remind people every now and then, prayer always works. It always does. I mean, if, you're, if you are close to Jesus and you are praying, it always works. But sometimes, He waits. And right then and there, in that moment, with His critics trying to pounce on Him, He is waiting to do what needs to be done. Next, meekness power restrained, 
is real strength. Those who are able to utilize self-control rather than display their power, those that can actually display meekness, those are the strong ones, not the ones that flaunt it. Sixth, God's plan is best. Might not feel like it. When you're going through whatever it is you might be going through, whether it's a financial problem or a health problem or a relationship problem or just a stress or anxiety problem or whatever it is you're going through, God's plan is best. We might think, well, I would have rather this happened. You know what? No matter what we come up with, it's never better than God's. You know? Who knows better than the Father? Maybe in our minds we've got it all laid out and we've got it all figured out how it's supposed to happen. You stay close to God. You talk to Him. You read His Word and you'll discover His plan is always best. Sometimes we just got to go through a bunch of junk to realize it. And the seventh and last thing that I'm putting up on the slide behind me, God is sovereign. And He is always faithful to His faithful ones. Which is why we celebrate Purim. It's why God told His people, don't forget the story of Esther. You're supposed to remember this. Because while things are playing out in this room with the religious leaders wanting to attack Him, and things escalating, and His disciples are scratching their heads going, what's about to happen? They all should be thinking, God is always faithful to His faithful ones. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word that encourages and it motivates us. It comforts us and gives us hope. Thank You for the, this concept of meekness, power restrained that You displayed through Your Son, who set such an exemplary example of what meekness looks like. Help us as we try to do the same. Thank you in advance for hearing this prayer because we know you will help us when we ask. We want to please you, Lord. And hopefully, we'll show you that. In Jesus' name, amen.